Good morning, and I welcome you to this service we have here this morning. Well, this happens from time to time. I uh, prepared a message for this morning, and um, I woke up at 5 o'clock this morning and decided that wasn't the message I was going to share after all. So uh, what you're going to hear this morning is comes more from inspiration than deep study. I'll put it that way. Um, I was listening to uh, some talks here recently on uh, sermon preparation, and um, the the speaker gave a a, um, a story of a of a preacher that apparently has, has said he said that most of his sermons are hatched on the back forty on the on, on top of a John Deere B or something like that. And another person made the comment that they sound like it too. So um, I, I hope that. Uh, this this can uh, serve as some inspiration to you as well. But obviously, um, I had um, there was a somewhat of a of a subject I've been thinking about, and I, I put a, a a good bit of time into it this week. But you know, um, with the with the turn of events, the uh, the the news of of Laverne and Danella and what they're going through right now, um, I woke up at five o'clock this morning and I thought, you know. There's a question that we we can ask, we tend to ask during circumstances like this that I would like to explore just a little bit this morning with you. And uh, I've entitled this uh, little talk, Embracing Life's Distresses Without Knowing Why. And, you know, there's a, there's a common thread in, uh, in our um, humanity here on earth and that is, if you live any length of time, uh, you will eventually, I would imagine, um, or you'd be very odd if you wouldn't, you will experience some kind of distress in your life. And uh, we looked at a man this morning in our Sunday school lesson that experienced a lot of distress. And uh, um, it would seem to, it seemed to him, and uh, we know the backstory, of course, when we begin, we begin the first chapter of Job, but Job didn't know that. And it, it did not. It was not uh, apparent to him <clears throat> in uh, in chapter one of Job, as we read of his experiences, why he was suffering the way he was. But indeed, he was. And um, ever since the fall, uh, humanity has had this thing called distress and suffering. And there's another common thread about that: is that if we can choose, we would never choose it. Never. There's not one of us that would volunteer to go with Job, go through what Job went through. We just wouldn't do that. I mean, that's that's not the way we're cut out. We will we will go actually to pretty great lengths to avoid such a thing. And and I guess to some degree that's that is reasonable. I mean, you know, if if you have it in in your ability to avoid unneeded suffering. Um, I don't see that that's unreasonable that a person would do that. But many times I have found in my small amount of, uh, I, I, you know, I don't know how you measure suffering, but I feel like, I feel like the things that I have maybe experienced in life are somewhat trite compared to what, uh, say Job did or, or others in life have experienced. But, um, many times these things come without our choice and without our knowledge of why. That, that is simply the way it is. But it doesn't keep us from wanting 
answers the why answers. And, and we're, we, we explore that and we look at that and we say, why did this calamity befall me? Or why did this experience become my lot in life? You know, I, as far as I know, I'm in the will of God. And I don't know that I deserve this. You know, these are the maybe the, the ways our minds want to run. Or at least my mind wants to run that way some, sometimes. I, um, I had several things that happened this week that um, caused me to pause and at least ask the question why. Um, I'm going to try to condense somewhat of a long story into a short story. But um, a number of years ago, through an ad on Craigslist, I... I learned to know a man from Good Thunder that began to buy all my bull caps. And that, that's, that's, that's all I know about this man is, is my interaction with him every spring when he tootles over once a week and picks up bull caps from me. But he was a nice man and I learned to know him casually. And, um, he, I guess he thought enough of me that every, uh, every Christmas he would send a Christmas card and, and, uh, we would chat a little bit through the year. We would maybe text or chat a little bit. And, um, Anyway, um, Christmas came and went, and I didn't hear from him. And it was getting toward the end of January, and I thought, oh, you know, I should maybe just reach out to him and make sure that he's he's interested in my bull calves again this year. So I did that. I, I texted him. Actually, I called him, and I went straight to voicemail. Uh, that's a little bit odd. I left a message. Didn't call me for a week. I texted him. No response. And this this is highly unusual. This man is not a man to avoid his text messages and phone calls. And so I just kind of left it languish there for a little bit. And finally, I'm like, this is so unusual that I'm, go- I'm going to see if I can figure out what's going on here. This just doesn't seem right. Well, I tried calling him again, and it went to voicemail, and then it said his voicemail box was full and can't take messages. So th- this was just really unusual. So a little bit of online sleuthing um, produced some relatives of his over there, and I was able to uh, source a phone number, and I called left a message, and within 15 minutes, I got a call back from this person's brother-in-law, as it turned out. And I said, you know, I said, this is a really strange question, but here's who I am, and I'm trying to track your brother-in-law down. And he said, well, yeah, he said, uh, he, he's in a pretty bad way. He said he's been in uh, St. Mary's for the last three months. And he proceeded to tell me how that the beginning of November, this man had um, had come down with a malady, that he, he just felt really bad. And a week later, he's off to the hospital in an ambulance and promptly transferred to uh, St. Mary's with an autoimmune disorder that had turned into spinal meningitis. And he had several strokes on top of that. And so his problems quickly multiplied. And he had a brush with the valley of the shadow of death. And... Um, and he is still in um, modes in, in, in modes of recovery currently, but certainly not out of the woods. So we we talked. I talked briefly with this man, but the, but but I, I I couldn't help but think of this person's life. He so he lost his father in 2017. I, I just knew this from what I knew about this person, which you know this happens. His father was older. He died, but in 2018, his wife sued for divorce. And it was a nasty divorce, and you can read about that online if you wish to. I don't recommend it, but it was nasty. And uh, his wife took him to the cleaners, as you would say. And um, a few years after that, he had a run with cancer, and I knew the man during that time. And now he has this. And the, the, the thing that impresses me 
about this gentleman is that he is so upbeat and so um, um, so cheerful about his problems in life, which seem to be many. Um, in fact, just to give you an illustration, one time when he was telling me just briefly about his divorce, I just asked, I said, so, you know, what, is your wife nearby? Like, where is she? And, and he said, well, she has chosen to live with another gentleman. And I thought, what person would call your ex-wife's boyfriend a gentleman? Now, that takes a man to do that. I, I just was impressed with, with that verbiage, I guess. And, and he has just cho- chosen to be a very upbeat person about this. I don't know really his, um, his uh, walk with the Lord other than he is a practicing Luther, and I do know that. But I sit there, and I couldn't help but ask the question, why did this man need one more thing in his life? You know, I, I, had, to, I had to just ask that question. And I can't say that that question didn't come through my mind again last night whenever I had my uh, talk, talk with Warren about um, uh, Laverne and, and the, the issues that he was facing. And I'm like, why? Does, does our church need that? Is that what we need right now? I couldn't, you know, those, those questions want to come. Well, I would like to look at some biblical examples quickly of some people that asked this exact question. They, they, they went to God and they said, why God? Why is it this way? Turn with me to Numbers 11 for our first illustration here. And, uh, you can know by just the, um, just where we're going, who we probably were talking about. This is the man Moses. And, uh, Numbers 11 is an account of, um, of, of the people falling out with their their quota of manna and uh, complaining about it. And um, it says in verse 10 that Moses heard the people weep throughout their families, every man in the door of his tent, and had the anger of the Lord was kindled greatly, and Moses also was displeased. And now here's Moses' question in verse 11. And Moses said unto the Lord, Wherefore, or you could say why, why hast thou afflicted thy servant, and why have I not found favor in thy, thy sight, that thou layest the burden of all this people upon me? Have I conceived all this people? Have I begotten them that they should, that thou should say unto me, carry them in thy bosom, as a nursing father beareth the sucking child, unto the land which thou swearest unto thy father, and to their fathers? Whence shall I have flesh to give all these people? For they weep unto me, saying, Give us flesh that we may eat. I am not able to bear all this people alone, because it is too heavy for me. And I'll stop reading there. But Moses, Moses in his frustration went to God and he said, God, I need an answer. Why did you tell me to do this? What did I do to deserve this after all? And we know the story of Moses well enough to know that he had the exact same conversation with God at the bush whenever God came and said, Moses, I want you to do this. And, and Moses like, I don't think so. I'm pretty content. In fact, the Bible even says that, I, that Moses was content to be out there in that wilderness with them sheep. And he was actually enjoying himself. And, and he would have been content to be a shepherd in that wilderness there by Midian for, I think, till he died. And God called him to, to lead these, these, um, these stiff-necked people, I guess you would say. Moses did not want this job. I think that is, that is clear from what we know about 
about Moses and uh, how he speaks of it. Now, it's interesting to me that God did not choose to answer Moses. As far as I know, Moses went to his grave never knowing why it was him that was chosen. But if we have continued reading here, in verse 16, God did have mercy on Moses, and he realized that Moses needed some help, and so he, he chose 70 elders to become his helpers. And um, in verse 17, it talks about how the spirit that was in Moses came upon these 70 elders and that um, and that he at least enjoyed some help with the burden that he was facing. So God didn't choose to, to, to give him a why, but God did choose to give him a gift of help. And um, and we're going to leave that there for now, because basically what I the point I want to make is Moses had a why question, too. And this man was a man of God. But it didn't keep him from wondering why. Turn with me now to Job. We, we studied about this man uh, today. But we're going to see here that a little later in the book, Job had the exact same question. If you turn to Job 7, um, you'll see this in verse 20. It says, and I'm just really breaking in the middle of things here, but the question is in this verse. I have sinned, what shall I do unto thee, O thou preserver of men? Why hast thou set me as a mark against thee, so that I am a burden to myself? Or in other words, what he's saying here is, God, why am I the target here? Like, what did I do to deserve all this? Like, I can't, I can hardly even stand to live with myself. Why, why is this? And, and again, God never gave Job the answer why. He never did. Now, if you turn to Job 40, we do find Job at a little different place here. Um, we have conversation going on between friends and Job. We have conversation going on between God and Job. And after a while, after, after um, God and Job have conversed for a bit, in, in chapter 40, let's start at verse 1. Moreover, the Lord answered Job and said, Shall he that contendeth with the Almighty instruct him? He that reproveth God, let him answer it. And then Job responds like this. Then Job answered the Lord and said, Behold, I am vile. What shall I answer thee? I will lay my hand upon my mouth. Once have I spoken, but I will not answer, yea, twice, but I will proceed no further. Job had reached a place here in chapter 40 that while he did not have answers, he had come to a place where he was satisfied that God had his best in mind. And and God never answered anything real specifically. He just simply went through a number of exercises with Job to help Job realize how big he was, how in control he was, and how small Job really was. And I think the book of Job, I personally believe the book of Job is in the Bible for the reason to show us all these years later that while things have a why answer, and we know what that was. The why was is because there was some conversation and some, some, um, a little bit of, um, of a match going on between Satan and God, you might want to say. But that was withholding from Job. Job never knew that. I suppose Job maybe knows that now. I don't know. But uh, Job certainly never knew that while he traversed the face of the earth. And 
That has served as inspiration to many a saint ever since the story of Job. The, the story of Job, I would, I would suggest, would not hold the fascination that it does if God had left Job in the know. If, if, if God would have, would have went to Job after him and Satan had their little visit and said, now look, Job, Satan's gonna come and he's gonna buffet you and he's gonna, he's gonna, he's gonna take you right down to the wire. In fact, your wife is even gonna set her face against you. And Job said, got it. Alright, I got it. I can perform. It wouldn't hold its fascination. It wouldn't even be a story. It wouldn't be worthy of print hardly. But what makes it worthy of print and our inspiration is how Job was willing to weather those storms, or he did weather those storms without knowing why. Turn with me now to Psalm 10. David has a question here that he asks. And David David had a number of questions in, in the Psalms that he asked. We're just going to... Uh, to pick this one out, even there would be many others that we could perhaps. In verse 1, it says, Why standest thou afar off, O Lord? Why hidest thou thyself in times of trouble? Um, we're not exactly sure what David's troubles were here. Um, he had a few in his life. Uh, he was chased around and he had family issues and so on. But he certainly felt that at least at this point when he penned this psalm, that for some reason God was withholding himself from him and was not near him in this time of trouble. And then he goes on to say in the ensuing verses, he's like, you know, I'm looking out here at the wicked people, and I'm seeing that they're having actually a pretty good time. Things are going relatively well for them, and here I am a godly person, and things are not going well for me. And I wouldn't mind having an explanation for this, God, if you wouldn't mind. And, and I would say that that thought process can come and haunt us too. What, what, what did I do to deserve this? You know, I've served God. I've done this. And look at George Soros. He's 92 years old. And he's not in, in bad health that I know of. And uh, he's worth $8.9 billion. And he supports horrible evil things. The, 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 the things that this man has done to destroy... Um, things that pertain to life and godliness are unbelievable. Why does, why does he have 8.9 billion and, and live in to be a ripe old age? And somebody else that has served the Lord well, um, they hit an early grave. Why is that? There's no answer for that. We cannot give an answer for that. Those are, those are things that we are left to contemplate. Turn with me now to Habakkuk. This is a little a little book here that is uh, kind of tucked in here, so so bad in our minor prophets that we have a hard time finding it, and we rarely turn to it. But it's right after the book of Nahum, and it is before the book of Zephaniah. If you're having trouble finding it, so this little book here, this prophet Habakkuk prophesied. He was a, he's a contemporary with Jeremiah, and he prophesied to the children of Judah before the captivity. Now, the interesting thing about this book is it contains no prophecy. He doesn't say anything directly to the children of Judah about their sin or anything like that. It is a dialogue between the prophet and God. That's that's what this is. And uh, 
So, so we're going to look at that just a little bit because Habakkuk had a few questions that he had for, for God here in this book. One of them is, um, the first one in, is in verse 3. Why dost thou show me iniquity and cause me to behold grievance? For spoiling and violence are before me, and there are that raise up strife and contention. Now, jump over to verse 13 of um, the same chapter, chapter 1. Now he almost accuses God. He says, Thou art of purer eyes than to behold evil, and cannotst look on iniquity. Wherefore, or why lookest thou upon them that deal treacherously, and holdest thy tongue, when the wicked devour the man that is more righteous than he? All right, so Habakkuk's, Habakkuk's problem is here. He does not understand how a righteous God can take an ungodly nation of Babylon and send them over and punish the children of Judah, who even though I don't think Habakkuk would dispute that they were that they had problems, he said they're still more righteous than the Babylonians' God, and I don't understand how you're thinking through this, that you would take somebody more ungodly and punish somebody less ungodly. It just didn't make any sense to Habakkuk at all. At all. Now, if you... If you look now in chapter 2, we have a, a few clues here why God, or th- these aren't really clues, but these are the answers that Habakkuk got, all right? Look at verse 4, the latter part of verse 4. Verse, we'll just read the whole verse in chapter 2. Behold, his soul, which is lifted up, is not unri- upright in him, but the just shall live by his faith. In other words, what, what God is telling Habakkuk is, I'm not going to give you the answer. But here's what I will tell you. If you have enough faith, Habakkuk, you will, you will be able to rest in me that what looks like an injustice to you is actually justice to me. You're just going to have to rest in that. And then if you go over to verse 20, it says, The Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. A lot the same attitude that God is asking of Habakkuk that Job said whenever he finally recognized who the Lord was. He said, I'm just going to shut up. I'm just going to lay my hand upon my mouth. God here is saying, I'm in the temple. I'm still there. Uh, Just don't don't ask any questions that, that you don't need answers for. Just keep silence. Just let the earth keep silence before me. Habakkuk then prays a prayer in verse in chapter 3, and we're not going to read that prayer fully, but I will read the most well-known part of that prayer at this point, and that comes in verse 17. This is the conclusion of Habakkuk's prayer and the conclusion of his understanding of who God is and why things are going the way they are. He says, Although the fig tree shall not blossom, neither shall fruit be in the vines, the labor of the olive shall fail, And the fields shall yield no meat. The flock shall be cut off from the fold, and there shall be no herd in the stall. Now that really sounds like Job's problems to me. This sounds like a farmer that is in up over his eyeballs. Nothing's going right. And what does he say in verse 18? Yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. The Lord is my strength. And he will make my feet like hinds feet. He will make me to walk upon mine high places. What a, what a beautiful conclusion 
for a prophet that started out with these troubling questions. Why, Lord? What's going on? Can you give me some answers? And he finally concludes. He says, you know what? I'm at the place now that I can say the whole world can be against me, and yet I'm convinced God is still on the throne. And that takes faith, unbelievable faith. And I think probably until we experience some of these um, problems, we don't even we don't even have the opportunity to express or to exercise the faith in that in that way. Two more. Turn to John nine. Um, just look briefly here at this one. Very familiar story. We have a blind man here. We have Jesus and his disciples passing by the blind man. The, the disciples look at the blind man and they said to Jesus, Who did sin? This man or his parents that he was born blind. In other words, why is this man blind? And again, Jesus said, Look, he didn't sin and neither did his parents. This man was born blind because God needed glory. All right. And so the story goes on. The blind man is healed, etc. However, I believe God had received some kind of glory up to that point in this man's blindness. And this is something that, again, I think we grapple with when we are faced with affliction in the flesh. Is, is there something? Is there something that I did or could have done different? Um, is this physical affliction of mine some sort of punishment to me? Um, and, and I think in the when our flesh is in a point of suffering, I think from, and I haven't suffered very much, but I tell you what, that's not the right time to be asking a lot of hard questions. That's really not the time to be questioning the sovereignty of God. We, we had best had that in place before we hit the time of suffering. But it's an easy pot shot the devil will use, and he will cause people to question, why? Why? Why is this, why is this happening to me when we're down physically? All right, the last one we're going to look, look at is um, in Matthew 27. And um, again, this is extremely familiar. But the interesting part of this is that this question of why actually comes from Jesus himself. And um, in Jesus, I would say his darkest hour when he's hanging on the cross. And it actually says that it was, it was dark, literally, in verse 45 of chapter 27. Now this... From the sixth hour, there was darkness all over the land until the ninth. And about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a voice and said, Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani, which that is to say, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? Well, had God forsaken him? Uh, no, God had not forsaken Jesus. We know that. But I believe that in Jesus' humanity, he asked the questions that human, humans ask at that point. Why? Where are you, God? Well, let's try to get a few answers now. How should I handle life when I can't get an answer to my why? How should I do that? I just have a few thoughts here I jotted down. Number one, let's not spend copious amounts of time trying to rationalize our situation. The proverb writer says it very concisely when he says, Trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not upon thine own understanding. In all thy ways acknowledge him, and he shall direct thy paths. When we begin to walk away from trust 
And we want to begin to lean on our own understanding, to rationalize the thing out, to, to come to reach a conclusion that we're happy with, we lose our trust in God, or that's our tendency. God just says, acknowledge me, I will direct your paths. Number two, we must rest in the fact that God always has the good of his children in mind, always. And I'm going to repeat a verse that you probably learned in preschool Sunday school, but it, it should still be something that's dear to our hearts today. And that comes from the book of Romans. We know, we know that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are called according to his purpose. Jeremiah 29, 11 has something similar to say, for I know the thoughts that I think toward you, saith the Lord, thoughts of peace and not of evil, to give you an expected end. Now, when God is going to give you an expected end, he knows what that's going to be, and it's going to be a good one. Now, the the path to that end is not necessarily going to be um, the easiest, perhaps. But if you're willing to stay on that path, God has a good end for, for those that love him. Number three, we must not allow, I'm sorry, we must allow our faith to take precedence over our sight. And I'm just going to quote from a very short verse in 2 Corinthians 5, 7, and I know I'm pulling this right out of a context, but I think we can do that and do justice uh, with the verse. Paul says we walk by faith and not by sight. And when we're walking by faith and we're relying on that and we're not so much concerned about what we're seeing right in front of us, that is a good spot to be. And Richard's devotional uh, this morning, I'm going to quote from there as well in Lamentations 3. It is good that a man should both hope and quietly wait for the salvation of the Lord. I would suggest this morning that is not my tendency, and I don't think it's humanity's tendency in general, to wait patiently and quietly when things do not seem very quiet around us, and we seem to be in the valley of tribulation. We want to take things in hand ourselves, and we want to go well beyond our scope of comprehension and uh, walk by sight and leave faith behind. Let's not do that. Number four, let's not succumb to worry. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, he said, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. And you know, that's where my mind wants to go in situations like this. It wants to go to, to borrow tomorrow's troubles. Okay, how are we going to get through this? What do we have to put in place to get through this particular valley? What can we do? What should we do? Well, God calls us here to live today. Let's get through today once. And then once we wake up tomorrow, uh, there'll be grace for that day too. And we'll just take this one day at a time. Because God does not deny that tomorrow may hold evil for us. But he said... Tomorrow's troubles will be enough for tomorrow. Let's not borrow tomorrow's troubles today. Let's leave them for tomorrow. Peter says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, that he may exalt you in due time, casting all your care upon him, for he careth for you. Do we really believe that today? Do we believe that God cares for us? Can we humble ourselves under that mighty hand? 
And number five, I would encourage us to take courage from the examples of others that have walked before us through deep waters. The Bible, I think God knew in his, in his wisdom we needed this. And so he puts a collection of people in Hebrews 11. People that walked by faith and not by sight and some through extremely deep waters. You know, he gives us, he gives us pretty good commentary, uh, in the first part of the chapter on people that we know a good bit about. You know, we know something about Abraham and Moses and these people. But then when you get to the last part of the chapter in the last number of verses, it gets really condensed and he talks about people that faced lions and walked through deserts and were hungry and thirsty and escaped the edge of the sword and these kinds of things. People that in some ways were left to wonder, well, who were these people? How, how did, you know, what, what were their names? You know, what did they, what did they face and how did they face it? But that's not really the, the point of the verse. The verses are there for us to consider that there are people that have gone through extreme, extreme circumstances in, in life and have kept the faith. And most likely, they did that without knowing why. A few other observations here that I would just like to quickly mention. Let's remember that God is not obligated to give us any questions to our any answers to our why questions. And um, I would just pull from Romans nine, where Paul tells the Roman church there, he says, Nay, O man, who art thou that replies against God? Shall the thing formed say to him that formed it, Why hast you made me thus? Hath not the potter power over the clay of the same lump to make one vessel unto honor and another to dishonor? And we could go to Jeremiah and his little illustration there in the potter's house. Very, very similar. Number two, it's okay to consider what God wants me to learn from an unexplainable situation. But we can't demand an answer when there is not an apparent answer. And what I mean by that is sometimes things happen to us that as we reflect on it, we can say, you know what, if I wouldn't have done that, or I would have done this, or I would have approached this differently, we can connect the dots and we can say, this likely wouldn't have happened. And we can learn from that. And praise God when it's that clear. And that's good. And I'm not saying we shouldn't ask ask the, the question why at times, but when the answer is not apparent, let it lay. Do not allow Satan to buffet you into thinking that there's an answer that you need to know, and you're just not smart enough to get it. And this is probably because of some sin in your life, or it is because of some mistake you've made along the way, that you are you are buffeted with these troubles. We, have, we just have enough illustrations of the Bible to know that that just may not be the case. Another thing we need to consider... Let's real, realize that we really, as human beings, deserve nothing. And again, my mind goes back to Richard's uh, devotional there. Um, it's just of the Lord's mercy that we have this day. We don't, do we deserve this? We don't deserve this day. There's nothing that I've done to deserve it. There's nothing that I have done to deserve the fact that I'm here this morning and feel pretty good. There's really not, I can't, I can't tell you that I deserve that. Neither do I believe that Brother Laverne necessarily deserves what he's experiencing today. It's not a deserving thing here. 
It is simply of the Lord's mercies that we have anything that we have. And Job, again, today's lessons, shall I accept good and not evil? Is that, is that the way I should look at this? Job is saying, you know what, we gotta take both here, wife, you know? We gotta take it both. Alright. Quickly, let's go back to, uh, Hebrews 5 now for some concluding, uh, rewards of, uh, of suffering without knowing why. I'm not going to take the time to read this chapter, but if you go down to, this is talking about Jesus here, the priesthood of Christ, and I'm going to read um, verse 7, 8, and 9. It's talking about Jesus. Who in the days of his flesh, we're talking about Jesus when he lived here on earth, when he had offered up prayers and supplications with strong crying and tears, Unto him that was able to save him from death, and was heard in that he feared. Though he were a son, yet learned he obedience by the things which he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the author of eternal salvation unto all them that obey him. I see four things in this, in these three verses that we can, we can um, have as rewards to submitting to the unanswerable things of life. Number one, there's the reward that it, we learn to go to our Father in prayer in ways that we never have before. <clears throat> Jesus was a model in prayer. In fact, the disciples said, you, could you teach us to pray? But when you get to the garden, we have Jesus. I think this is what it's referring to here. Um, the, uh, the offering up prayers and suff- supplications with strong crying and tears. There was, there was prayer in that garden that Jesus had never prayed before. And it says there that an angel came and ministered unto him. Uh, that prayer that, that day brought Jesus in communion with God in a way that he never, ever experienced before. And I'm not suggesting that when we pray fervently during a, a period of hard time in our lives that we're necessarily going to see a visible angel show up. But I think it could be an experience quite similar to that in some way. I also see in verse 7 that when we submit to the unanswerables in life, we have our faith strengthened. You know, Jesus' request in the garden was that that cup would be moved, would be removed from him, and it wasn't. And um, God could have, God could have done that. Jesus even said he could have called 10,000 legions or 10,000 angels, however many, 12 legions, I forget the wording, but a lot of angels anyway, and could have, could have delivered him from that. But he chose not to do that. You know, uh, Darla and I had um, had uh, supper here a few weeks ago with uh, Verlin and Laurel Yoder from uh, um, uh, Grove City, and we were talking about the the valley that they're going through right now. And and Laurel made the comment. She said, "I never thought this would happen to me," because she said, "I always thought that God knew I was too weak for it." Well, you know. The testimony that she now has is, you know what, God gives strength for the day. That's what it is. And she, she is finding God faithful in ways that she had not found God before. Now we shrink from that, don't we? We're like, boy, you know, do, do we need to go through that to find faith? Well, I'm just saying that we, we likely will find a faith that we never had before. The third thing I see in this chapter here is in verse eight. 
we learn obedience. It says that Christ learned obedience by the things that he suffered. This word obedience could be translated submission. You know, when we get into situations that we that are totally out of our control, we learn to release our will to the will of someone much bigger than us because there are really no options, and to fight it will get us nowhere. And Jesus learned that. He said in the garden, not my will, but thine be done. I also see in verse 9, it says that we are made perfect. Now, this word perfect is way overused in our, in our world today. We use it too much and too loosely. Somebody will say, hey, I got it. You know, I, I, I'm going to take care of this. And somebody will respond, perfect. Okay, I guess it is perfect. But I think we have lost the sense of what perfection is. Do you want to be a perfect Christian? Of course we do. God says here, through the Hebrew writer, that if you really want that perfection, you can expect some suffering in life. We should expect that. Lastly, let's turn to uh, Hebrews 13 for the last point here. And that comes in verse 3. Remember them that are, ba- that are in bonds as bound with them, and them which suffer adversity as being yourselves also in the body. You know, when, when we suffer or when someone close to us suffers, this gives us an opportunity to enter into that suffering with them. And I do not stand before you here today, and neither do you, having really any idea what, what faces us as a church. We don't know that. Um, we may get a phone call this afternoon that says, you know what? This spot on Laverne's brain is, after all, just a benign tumor. It's pretty, pretty easily taken care of, and uh, we'll rejoice if that's the case. We could get something much grimmer. We don't know that. At this point, we don't know that. But whatever the, the, um, the outcome is, let's enter into it with them. And I have no doubt that that is the, 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 the fellowship of brothers that I speak to this morning that are going to be willing to enter into this time of adversity uh, with the Wadle family. And I will say, times like this, I think, should bring a certain amount of clarity, you know, to our lives. Um, it's pretty easy for us to get uh, wrapped up in our day-to-day um, things, uh, things that we, w- we all know, we all know at the end of the day, will mean absolutely nothing a hundred years from now. Zero. And yet, because we live in the moment, and there is a certain amount of importance on these trivial things, it is easy for us to get wrapped up in it. And things like this should cause us to stop and ponder and search our hearts and say, am I too wrapped up? Do I understand the mercy of the Lord that is new this morning? Or am I too busy farming my farm or driving my truck or wiring somebody's house or whatever we all do here this morning that I have really forgotten the important things of life. The Bible has laid on the shelf and collected dust for weeks. I haven't read it. I haven't prayed for a while because I'm just too busy. These things should drive us toward God like nothing else can. 